There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. Witness a theoretical argument. Washington, D.C., the present. Four intelligent men talking about an improbable thing like going back in time. A friendly debate revolving around a simple issue. Could a human being change what has happened before? Interesting and theoretical because whoever heard of a man going back in time? Before tonight, that is. Because this is The Twilight Zone. Hi guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and today joined once again by everybody's favorite, ADZ, here in the Fifth Dimension, back for another episode. Glad to be here. Yep, uh, hopefully uh, the sniffles are pretty much gone for me, but it seems like every time Eric and I record, I start getting stopped up, my nose starts running, so if you're any extra little <laughs> sniffling or uh, sneezes or anything, it's it's me, so... I'm trying to get out of the fifth dimension, but I got a little bit of that stardust in my nose, so uh, we'll have to yeah, go from there. Yeah. So, Eric, um, this is going to be episode 13 of season two, um, and being a history buff that I am, I really thoroughly enjoyed this episode. But I'll save my comments till the end, but I think out of season two, this might be my favorite episode so far. It might okay. even go above Night of the Meek. Or not Night of the Meek, uh, uh, Eye of the Beholder. Really? Yeah, and I, I do like Eye of the, I do like Eye of the Beholder. Don't get me wrong; I think it's one of the greatest of all time. But this being my first time, I believe actually watching this episode, it, it's it's just good. It's good stuff. But we'll yeah. get there. Okay. Well, yeah. Let's jump right in. Uh, this uh, episode is entitled "Back There." It is the Twilight Zone season two, episode number thirteen. And it was recorded, or it was released on January the 13th, 1961, and that'll lead me to our little segment we like to call... On This Day in History! Okay, on this day in TV and film history, speaking of January the 13th, uh, in 1928, RCA and GE install three television sets in the homes of, I guess, per possible pursuant buyers in Schenectady, New York, allowing an American inventor, he was named E.F.W. Alexanderson, to demonstrate the first home television receiver, which delivered a poor and unsteady, get this, 1.5 square inch picture. So that was in 1928, RCA rolled out their first Television. Can you imagine being the first person ever to see a, 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 a motion picture like that? Can you imagine? You'd be like, yeah, what is I this mean, witchcraft? <laughs> yeah, having it in your home, it'd be a little hard to watch on a 1.5-inch screen. I mean, now, what do you got in your house? Like 40, 50-plus, everybody's got, but my, how far we've come. But that, that, that'd be pretty cool to be the first person to you ever know, my, um, my grandma, have one. My grandma worked for RCA, 
and the only thing I ever wanted was a TV watch. I, I'd seen it on the Jetsons oh, or yeah. something, and yeah. they actually did have one. And I was like, man, that's all I ever wanted. But it was just so expensive back in the 80s, you know what I mean? It was just... Yeah. But now, like us, we carry around Netflix and everything in your pocket on your phone. For sure, yeah. Come a long way. All right. So that's in regard to television history. So let's talk about a little movie history. So in 2013, and this actually applies to our episode today, in 2013, at the 70th Golden Globe Awards, Daniel Day-Lewis won a Golden Globe for his role as Abraham Lincoln in the, the movie Lincoln. And this was 51 years after the broadcast of this Twilight Zone episode. Huh. So that would be January the 13th. Pretty cool. Yeah. Did you have? Okay. No, that's a good, that's a good movie, though. That Lincoln movie's a good movie. Oh, it's probably one of my, yeah, uh, top five movies of all time for me. So this particular episode was directed by David Oric McDearman, and the story was written by Rod Serling. The featured music was by Jerry Goldsmith for this Twilight episode, and aforementioned that it was on January 13, 1961. The total production costs for this episode were back to a regular episode at $47,090.82. And when we cost adjust that for inflation for 2023 now, we're looking at $468,000. Um, well, almost four sixty nine. So four sixty eight, eight sixty nine uh, on the money at an eight hundred ninety five percent increase. And uh, with that being said, I think that's all I got as far as introduction. Jimbo, do you got stuff for me on the cast? I do. Um, good old main character Russell Johnson. You've seen him in uh, a previous uh, episode of Twilight Zone. I believe it was in season one. Uh, also dealing with time travel, which I know Eric liked that episode. I could care less about it. Uh, but that was Pete. Cor- he played Pete Corrigan. Uh, you may remember him for his probably his most famous role as the professor on good old Gilligan's Island, which a little bit of history there, Eric. I actually lost my first tooth watching Gilligan's Island, eating an orange, just so everybody knows. Oh, I thought you were going to say a coconut. <laughs> uh, but he was also in Attack of the Crab Monsters, where he played Hank Chapman from 1957, and I really want to see that because we've said it twice, uh, so I need to check that out. Uh, you had uh, Paul Hartman playing the police sergeant. Uh, he was in Higher and Higher in 1943, but he was also in Eric Don Knotts' Reluctant Astronaut, where he played Rush. Uh, also, we had Bartlett Robinson. Uh, he played William, which I won't give anything away just quite yet. Uh, but he was in Sleeper in 1973, and he was also in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Next, we had John LaSalle. He played Jonathan Wellington. Uh, he played Dark Sh- in Dark Shadows in 1966, where he was Dr. Peter Gunshire. I got to learn to print better because my handwriting just all goes together <laughs> uh, then he had jimmy linden uh he was the patrolman as james linden uh, he was in vigilante force in 1976 this one what threw me raymond bailey uh that was the great yeah, he played millard and he is from the great television show the beverly hillbillies where he played mildren uh, milburn drysdale yes eric oh yeah yeah no, uh, just an insert. The the episode from season one that he played in was, uh, speaking of Russell Johnson, was uh, Execution. Execution. That's that what I thought it was. I, I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to be wrong. But I believe I have that no, in no, my you. little uh, book segment I'm going to read. So, 
Yeah. Then we have Raymond Greenleaf. Uh, he played Jackson. Uh, he was in All the King's Men in 1949. John Eldridge played Whitaker. He was in High Sierra in 1941. You had Jean Ines, uh, was Mrs. Landers, uh, probably most famous for The Twilight Zone. She was in some other stuff I didn't write down. Uh, Lou Brown, he was the lieutenant. He was in Airport in 1970 where he played Reynolds. Carol Eve Rawson was the lieutenant's girl. Uh, she was in The Stepford Wives in 1975. Nora Marlowe was the chambermaid. Uh, she was in The Thomas Crown Affair in 1968. Uh, she was also in Westworld, the movie, as the hostess. Then you had Pat O'Malley as an attendant. He was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where he played a baggage man. And yes, playing the 1865 attendant that was uncredited, you had Fred Krueger. No, not from Nightmare on Elm Street, but actually <laughs> another Fred Krueger. So yes, he is real. Uh, but he played in The Twilight Zone. He was also in some Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And then, of course, the legendary, uh, doesn't need any introduction, uh, Mr. Rod Serling, where he played himself and the narrator as the host, and he's also uncredited for this role. So, Eric, um, right. uh, quite a different bit of a cast because we had a lot lot, uh, lot more people in this. Um, but if you want to go ahead and set the stage for the plot of this episode. Yeah, no problem. Um yeah, it was another one of those episodes where uh, there were the cast um, was rather lengthy as as opposed to uh, um, thinking specifically. Um, uh, what's the, the invaders coming up here in another uh, couple episodes where there's only a cast of one? So that's kind of cool how that that sort of varies from episode to episode. Like sometimes you'll have a huge cast and sometimes only one person. So. Uh, another one of those episodes that was uh, rather lengthy in cast, but the plot for this particular episode goes as such. After debating with a member of his Washington club whether you could go back in time and change major events, Pete Corrigan seems to go back to April 15, 1865, the night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. He tries his best to warn the authorities of what will happen in a few hours, but it all falls on deaf ears. One person seems interested in what he has to say, but that person may have his own reasons for his behavior. And that person becomes very obvious who that is early on in the episode. Uh, uh, the twist is, um, I don't, I don't want to say it was totally obvious, but if, if you're familiar at all with history, the, the, the twist in this episode kind of becomes pretty obvious fairly early. Um, so we open the we sort of open this episode with the club and all these old duffer stuffy guys are sitting around a a card table right it's a ex exclusive well i'm assuming it's yeah washington dc type club and these old guys are sitting around and they're discussing um i guess the possibility of time travel if you will um whether it's possible, whether it would be, you know, I think they first start talking about the, the stock market crash, right? Of 19 black Thursday, 1927, was it? So they're, they're, they're discussing, you know, well, what if I went in and sold all my shares the day before, would that cause the crash to speed up? Or, you know, I would, if I had prior knowledge, 
you know, would I go and change things? And, and so it's just this back and forth discussion. It's interesting. One person pointed out, I can't remember where I read it or they pointed out, you would think that Russell Johnson's character would be more, he seems to be uh, against the idea or he, he doesn't think that it's possible that you could change major events in history. And it's interesting that he takes the anti-view of that when he actually goes back into time in this episode and he actually tries to change an event you know it's kind of anti to his character i guess because the the guy that he's conversing with i don't remember his name jimbo you might have it in the cast list i don't know if he's named but the guy that they're he's conversing back and forth with he he's trying to convince uh russell johnson's character and peter corrigan or pete corrigan he, he's trying to convince him that that would be possible and pete is kind of pushing back on the whole idea that it would be possible but uh, anyway, they're having that conversation and then he, after, you know, they finish their card game or whatever, he gets up and leaves anything uh, by way of in these opening scenes of trivia or anything. Uh, not yet. Not, not, not yet. Okay. Um, so this of course is, uh, the second episode, um, that Russell Johnson, uh, was in we talked about that uh pete corrigan mentions hg wells in this conversation this opening conversation he mentions hg wells in relation to the story of the time machine which had also been made into a movie the year before this episode came out in 1960 so the hg wells time travel uh story it was a book first and then it was made into a movie um the year before this episode came out um just by way of general trivia, this episode, it concerns the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which uh, originally aired on, this episode originally aired, as we said earlier, on January the 13th, 1961, only one week before the inauguration of the U.S. President John F. Kennedy. The assassination of JFK later had a direct impact on the Twilight Zone. Uh, the Twilight Zone Night Call, 1964, which was to have aired on November 22nd, 1963, was rescheduled for February the 7th, 1964. It also served as the basis for the Twilight Zone profile in the Silver Button, and that was in 1986. So there was a remake, apparently, in 1986 of the Twilight Zone uh, called Silver Button that surrounded the assassination of JFK, but the 1964 episode Night Call was had to be rescheduled because it was originally scheduled for the day that uh, JFK was assassinated in 1963. So those are just just a few connections as it pertains to the Twilight Zone and presidents and JFK in particular. Do you got something for me? Nope. No? <laughs> You're shaking your head. I'm sorry. I thought you had... No, I've got something, something interesting uh, coming up, though, when, when we get to the, the, the uh, police station. Okay. So Pete Corrigan... Uh, yeah, their conversation has just concluded, and um, I think the the waiter something and the waiter comes into play later in the episode. But the waiter accidentally spills a drink on him as he's walking out, and uh, I can't remember the waiter's William. name. William, <laughs> William, yep. thank you. Um, it's hard to keep this cast list in front of me. It's kind of big, like I said before. <laughs> so William accidentally sp spills a drink on him, then he passes through the double doors and it's in, and he's instantly transported back to 1865 he goes back into time 
It's interesting that they didn't use a, a time travel vehicle of any kind either. He just sort of kind of gets a headache or a migraine and he uh, blinks his eyes and then all of a sudden, you know, I like how they did the, the cinematography where they, um, there they focused in on the lamp, mm-hmm. uh, the lamp it turned post, into like know. a candle. Yeah, it was electric lamp in modern times, and then it, you know, trans was transported in, or changed into uh, a candle or a lantern type lamp. I thought that was a cool little effect that they did. And then he's inter- you know, he's immediately transported back to 1865. Well, he, he doesn't he, he doesn't know it's 1865 though. No, he, he doesn't. He he's banging on the door. Remember trying to get back right. into the club that he just which. We'll talk about that towards the end, too. I wonder well, – well, well, we'll get there. But, you know, because he's like, well, I, you know, it, it must be close. There's people walking the street. You see them. He's like, well, home. You know, I'll go home. Yeah, after his headache, he, he sort of has this headache uh, episode or whatever, and then he, he's kind of a little bit drowsy or whatever. He's stumbling a little bit, and he decides that he's going to go home. So – he makes his way home, which he then finds out is like a boarding house in 1865, right? Yep. He double checks the address and like he speaks with the chamber, I don't know what you call it, whoever, chambermaid or whatever, uh, the lady that was running the boarding house. And she says that she's only going to, she only, you know, gives rooms to people who are qualified and <laughs> And he's like, you know, he has to she's go like, this whole spiel. And she's like, what do you do? He's like, well, I'm an engineer. And she's like, oh, a man of, uh, what she say, right. a man of something. <laughs> man of means yeah. of, of some kind. So she knows I'm he's probably got the, money. Yeah, that he'll be able to pay. Um, here's a little piece of trivia. Um, to confirm the time period of 1865, small changes were made to the first draft Sterling wrote. All references to police captain were changed to police sergeant including Wellington's introduction at the police station. Police officer was was changed, excuse me, to patrolman. All references to landlady at the hotel where Wellington was staying were changed to chambermaid. Yeah, so I referenced that earlier. They were, she was called a chambermaid. And the sign outside the Washington Club was changed to the Potomac Club. So just some small changes for the era that they had to go back and do a few rewrites. Um... But we're back at uh, his his address, which is actually a boarding house, whatever. I can't remember the address. I think they give the address in 14-something lane. I don't know. Um, they A couple comes, a 19, the 19 is the number on the door. So a couple comes downstairs who are also boarders, and they're on their way to the theater, right? And they're going to Ford's Theater. And they're a pretty handsome-looking couple, you know. And so there's some inquiry by P. Corrigan of where, where they're going. I, I did think that this acting was somewhat over the top, how he kind of repeats the date. It's 1865, and it's Ford's Theater, and he kind of well, repeats he, it for effect over the top. I don't know if that's for people who weren't necessarily familiar with history, or I don't know. Well, not only that, but he asked them, what play are they going to see? And they're like, right, our right. American cousin, or whatever they say, yeah. you know what I mean? and. He's like, wait a minute, you know, it's, uh, what was it, April 15th or 14th or whatever, 1865. And, he, you know, and he doesn't think anything of it at first, you know, because he starts walking upstairs and then he stops and then he turns around and that's when he starts going crazy. You know what I mean? 
And uh, mm-hmm. I do believe, isn't the uh, husband or boyfriend of the girl, isn't he a, a police uh, patrolman? Uh, I think he might be in the military. Is that what He's it is? Got, like, okay. Military stuff. Yeah, but I don't know if it mentions what branch or anything. They may not get that deep. But uh, the plot of a man going back in time is back to trivia. The plot of a man going back in time to 1865 and given the opportunity to prevent the course of events leading to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln has been explored not once but twice on radio. The first attempt was on mutual. On Mutuals, The Mysterious Traveler, on the evening of February 7, 1950, the man who tried to save Lincoln dramatized the story of a scientist who figures out how to transfer a man's thoughts back into time and occupy another man's body. In this version, the time traveler finds himself himself, excuse me, in the body of John Wilkes Booth. Managing to get the better of the voice in his head, makes a successful effort to assassinate Lincoln. The same script was dramatized again years later for suspense. So that would kind of be a cool radio program, a guy who can transport his thoughts and enters the mind of John Wilkes Booth, but was uh, not successful, and then the assassination ends up taking place anyway. All right, Eric, I got a question for you. Yep. If you could go back, and and I don't want to sound morbid, but if you could go back and just be a fly on the wall or a witness to uh, an event, would you choose the Lincoln assassination or would you choose the JFK assassination? Which one intrigues you more? Maybe the JFK. Um, they both are. That's a hard question because they're both really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the JFK, maybe just because of. The Warren report and all the controversy, the CIA that surrounded, you know, I would like to be in on a lot of those secret meetings. Like if I could be like you described a fly on the wall, just so that I could maybe put some of those pieces together. Um, the Lincoln assassination, I guess for me, historically is probably a little bit more straightforward. It was John Wilkes Booth. There were tons of witnesses. They saw it happen. It was with a gun. It was in the, you know, in the booth. Or was it John Wilkes Booth? yeah right (laughs) so there's a lot of stuff you could read that you know what i mean the conspiracy theories on both uh, on both of them just run wild you know what i mean yeah i'm sure there are um but i i think just to answer your question simply the jfk uh assassination is a little bit there's there's a it's a lot more complex and there are a lot more moving parts in that one but i've watched several documentaries and and Lincoln, maybe it's just because 1865 seems like so long ago. It was a long time ago. He almost seems like a mythical figure. You know, he doesn't even almost seem real. I guess maybe with modern inventions of television and radio and stuff that JFK, it's a little closer to my lifetime. Well, I think not only that, but you actually have what the Zapruder film that you actually can see the assassination to. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Just Which, That was just a thought as I was you, watching this. I don't know. But as you said earlier, there is stuff online of the Lincoln assassination on <laughs> film. Yeah, people are so gullible. It's funny. It's you know, like, I was... Unseen unseen footage of the Lincoln assassination. There was... You know what? I was speaking of that just this week. I was on Facebook and I was scrolling and there was a thing that says... It had this old guy on there and he was on a TV show. And I don't remember what TV show it was on. Like, like basically they asked this panel. They said... This man witnessed a historical event, um, and he was only I, like 
five years old. And they asked him, I think he was 91, and they said, what did he see? And they're all guessing different stuff, but he actually saw the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Really? Yeah. I'll have to find it and show it to you. I can't remember what it was, but that is crazy. He was 91, but yet this is a TV show, Mm -hmm. I think, in the... Maybe in the 50s or 40s, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I just thought, right. wow, five years old. I mean, if you saw something like that when you were five years old, that's got to stick with you the rest of your life, man. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. That so, would have a huge I mean, it's like impact. it's like the Challenger explosion for me and you. I remember them taking us into the auditorium and watching it. You remember that? And then it was just yeah, gone. I, I, I feel like I remember. I was like in the lunchroom when, when I heard it. But, yeah, my, my memory's not the greatest. But for sure, that would have a huge impact. Uh, on you for the rest of your life so yeah just to answer your question probably 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 the jfk assassination would be something that i would want to be privy to but uh back to our episode um peter corrigan he rushes down to ford's theater and he just a little goof here he starts banging on that you can see the brick wall kind of moving when he's banging on the on the door you can kind of tell that it's um on a set uh, that's kind of interesting um so he's banging he he's trying to warn people i mean he's going crazy once he figures out that he's actually back in time it's the day before or the night of lincoln's assassination he, he's going to do everything he can to try to prevent this from happening he basically gets arrested he goes down to the police station and they they arrest him and they put him in jail. I don't remember for what. So in strolls this man who becomes very obvious as John Wilkes Booth. And he's trying to get Corrigan released into his custody. And which, again, just like Dust, <laughs> this is old time justice. Like, I don't think if someone's arrested, you can just stroll in. <laughs> Maybe you could back then. I don't know. And just like, just release this man into my, remand him into my custody and I'll be responsible watch over for him. And right. I'll take responsible for him, right? I don't, I don't think that. Maybe it does happen. I don't know the, the ins and outs of the law, but did you have something? I did. So once, once he's like, I'll go back to my car or <laughs> car, stagecoach, wherever he's like, I'll wait outside, have him bring him to me. If you watch the episode, when he says that, he turns around and he gets like this shocked look on his face. And I was like, man, that's kind of wild because they're bringing in somebody, a police sergeant's bringing in somebody. You know, when he gets to the door and he turns around and they're talking, he's talking back with the judge and he goes to the judge and, and he's like, okay, just have him come out. And he shuts the door. Sitting behind the door is a dead ringer for Abraham Lincoln. Really? Yeah. If you watch it, when he closes the door... I was like, because I, I, I think he thought, oh, man, my, my my plot is foiled. You know what I mean? He's like, why does he do it here? You know what I mean? Maybe, did he find out? But if you look, I mean, it looks like a younger Abraham. Don't get me wrong. You know what I mean? But I think I always wondered why he turned and he was – I think that explains why he was, like, taken back by uh, the look that he gave. You know what I mean? And then I think he kind of relaxes and once he realizes that, hey, it's not him. It's just – Somebody that has the beard and everything that looks like him. And when does this happen? When he goes to close, watch when he when he goes when he starts walking away from the desk, and he uh-huh. turns around and watch his face. He'll look and he'll be okay. like, "I know Eric's pulling it up right now because he wants to see it." But you watch his face. Yeah. He turns and he's got like this shock look on his face. You can watch. Okay. And then when he walks past him, what? Pay attention to the back back of the building when he's at the door. And the door's, the door's open. When he closes the door as he's leaving, you'll see the guy sitting in the chair. 
Okay. So um, I just and, – and I think that was a really cool thing. I have a picture in front of me that has the captain and uh, the uh, – Corrigan, and in between them, you can see the picture of Abraham Lincoln. Too. Well, what I think looks like Abraham Lincoln. I'll show it to you. Um, but I thought that was a very interesting, interesting thing that I just personally caught uh, because I, I didn't understand why he would have that look of confusion on his face, and I think that's a subtle explanation for it. Oh, okay, interesting. Uh, according to the production report, Serling originally conceived this as an hour-long teleplay entitled "Afterwards." Guy Della Sipera of CBS TV, vice president, offered it to Armstrong Circle Theater, which happened to be the only hour-long anthology series airing that season, but Armstrong was not intrigued by the script. The sponsors for The Twilight Zone were not willing to expand their half-hour time slot. As Della explained, advertisers who have a regular series and who have extra money for specials always want to escape from their regular series to offer contrasting uh, contrasting attractions. For The Twilight Zone, Serling resorted to shortening the script to a brief 23 minutes and changed the title to Back There. So I guess he really wanted it to be a long-form extended version, but no one wanted to pick it up. I would have really, uh, really liked to see what they could have done if they got to expand this to like an hour or something. Because I think they could have yeah, done a I lot think, more twisting. I think it would have been pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. There, there would have been a lot more meat on the bones for the story. But uh, the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, a syndicated radio program offering dramatic thrillers five days a week, featured Assassination in Time, written by Ian Martin. The story told of a professor who trans... Now, this is different but he than the, the original one that I told earlier. This radio drama told of a professor who transported his daughter and her fiancé to 1865 the morning of the assassination. The two time travelers attempt to prevent the murder and change the course of history. Martin played supporting roles in thousands of radio broadcasts during the 1950s and was also among the cast of the mysterious traveler in suspense, which exposed him to the same premise, which was apparently borrowed from his own rendition. So there's kind of two differing radio uh, dramas. One that involved a couple and one that involved somebody who could just like, remember the one previous, a guy who could just, a scientist that could transport his mind and thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, this whole idea, this theme, it seems like it's come up over and over and over in time, like major catastrophic events. It seems like it's a recurring theme for us, you know, would we, could we, and I, you know, if you could, would you go back and change not only major events in time, but also, you know, major events, maybe major, avoid major catastrophes in your life as well. Um, back to the episode. So once John Wilkes Booth comes in and um, basically gets him released from jail, they end up back at the, the boarding house. John Wilkes Booth gives him some sort of drink or concoction that knocks him out um and uh they're talking back and forth and he they sort of get into it you know pete corgan doesn't put it together yet that this is john wilkes booth that he's talking to and he pulls out that hanky and it's like jww what was the other name that wilkes well booth wellington well jonathan yeah. wellington yeah which might have been like a middle name or something like that so 
he essentially drugs Pete Corrigan and he's looking at his pocket watch and Wilkes Booth knows that he has to get to Ford's theater in order to, you know, perform his dastardly act. Well, well I like when he's it. like, he's talking to him and he's like, um, you know, if I tell you the reason and how I know that the president's going to be assassinated tonight, you're going to think I'm crazy. You know, he's like, you won't mm-hmm. believe me. He's like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm an open man or whatever. And he gives him that drink and he starts getting groggy and, and, uh, He's like, what'd you do? Do you, you you drugged me or whatever? And he's like, no. He's like, actually, no, I'm starting to believe you. <laughs> he's like, I, I believe you because I am the man that's going to assassinate the president, basically. Right. So they, you know, they have an exchange. He, yeah, Corrigan drinks the drink and he, he's like, I've never felt this way before. And he starts like he's going to pass out. And Wilkes Booth exits, heads to Ford's Theater. And then, you know, Corrigan does a lot of writhing on the ground, I think, and then yeah, tries to get over to the fireplace. That's a that, little that's over the top. Cheesy. What's he trying to get yeah. to the fireplace for? Uh, I'm not sure. That, yeah. Um, so then in walks the chambermaid, though, and was it the police captain? or He was like second in command, right? Yeah, he's, he's the one he's that kind of believes him. Yeah, he he sort of believes him. I uh, I don't I have to look at the cast list again. Sorry, I'm. I think it's I think it's Jimmy Linden. I think it's just the patrolman. Yeah, okay, patrolman, or I see policeman here. He he tends to believe his story. He he believes Corgan's story, and that's going to play an important part later in the in the episode because you know he bends the the fabric of time if you will when we go back to 1965 um, that's going to play an important uh, role at the end of the episode but as the chambermaid and the police officer come into to the room uh, Corrigan describes in in great detail what's going to happen again and then they go down and well, try to foil the well, the before they they ask together, him, right? they say they say, "Where's Where's Wellington?" And she's like, I, "There's no Wellington here." She's like, mm-hmm. "The the you know the guy that put me in her drug me and all that." And she's like, "No." She's like, uh, "He's like he looks at that napkin and says J W B." And he's like, "John Wilkes Booth." She's like, "Oh yeah, that's the man yeah. that rents his apartment." So you're like, "Oh no," <laughs> you know. Right. So, <laughs> um, and then you start hearing like the president's been shot. Or, right uh, outside the window. Yeah, outside yeah. the window. And- yeah. Yeah. And then we come... Um, then he... What, what door does he start banging no, on? No, he bangs on the window. He bangs on, like, the window. Remember, he's oh, like, why didn't you believe me? I told you it was going to happen. Nobody would yeah. stop it. Yeah. So... This is kind of the this is kind of the over the top stuff that I was talking about before. Yeah, his acting is kind of a, a little over the top, but and then the, then we get back into the Potomac, right? He he's transported back into the Potomac, and he greets. It's not William this time; it's another attendant or mm-hmm. waiter. And then he's he's like, "Didn't you spill a drink on me a moment ago?" And the guy's like, "No, I don't know what you're talking about." And then he ends up back at the table, and. His seat is taken by someone else, and it happens to be the great... He's like a descendant of the police officer, the, the one that believed him, right? Mm-hmm. And then he, of course, uh, over the course of time, he's uh, bent the time travel continuum, if you will, and now <laughs> that he's back in 1965, 
uh, this particular gentleman sitting at the table is rather wealthy and he has a bunch of land, right? He is, I don't know, I think he made a lot of money through land. He's rich. And and it was because of his great, was it his great-grandfather who, or his grandfather who was the police officer? That believed Corrigan and, back in the thing. Yeah, because he said, yeah. he said, he said, didn't you used to wait on me here? And he's like, no. He's like, my great-great-grandfather, you know, used to... Uh, the night yeah, Lincoln was, was assassinated, said that he went around trying yeah. to get people to stop, uh, tell people that or whatever. And basically, he became like a, a folk hero, I guess, you know, a town hero or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he became a chief of police, I think he says. And then he became a councilman. And then he did some wheeling and dealing on land and, yeah. and made a lot of money on some land deals after he became a councilman. So that's why this guy is sitting in the in the chair and he's part of the club because he's you know through some insights and and certain things he is uh wealthy now and he's in the club because of some moves that his great-grandfather made so that's kind of a cool small little twist at the end of the episode and that pretty well i like i like what he says because um corrigan goes huh he's like you know time travel he's like some things can be changed in the past and some things can't because, you know, and then he goes and he pulls out the uh, handkerchief again and he has the John Wilkes Booth, the JWB embroidered uh, handkerchief again. So mm-hmm. it's it's not just one plot twist. There's there's multiple, number one, because he did go back in time. He did try to stop, you know, the, the uh, John Wilkes Booth was the person that actually got him out of there. Then he drugged him and then, you know... He, by doing those course of thing with the uh, police patrolman back in the 1865, now it's changed the future, which if you go back to the beginning of the episode, that's what they're talking about. They're like, hey, if you could go back and change the stock market, would you t- when it, know it was going to crash? Would you pull all your stocks out and all that? So it's very interesting that according to the Twilight Zone, this episode, that you can't change the historical aspects of what happened in history, like major events, but you can change minor things, which brings me back to Back to the Future. Um, if you watch Back to the Future, I know you're a huge fan of Back to the Future, but if you change something in the back uh, or back in time, it affects the future. You know, even from him hitting the tree at the pine, twin pine malls or whatever, you know, it's basically what the single pine mall and all that. So, yeah, very interesting. But I have a question for you. He was. He banged on the door to get back into the club at the beginning. He bangs on the stage door. Well, actually, he bangs on the, uh, uh, the the what do you call it, the hotel, I'll call it. He bangs on the stage door. He bangs on, um, you know, the window at the end. And then he bangs, it shows him banging on the door again to get back into normal time. Mm-hmm. Do you think... That he actually time traveled, or do you think all the banging was just caused by that headache injury banging on the door because he keeps banging? <laughs> it's all in his. It's all in his mind. Then, right? Like he's. He's. Uh, I don't know. Um, I did think it was interesting, like we mentioned before, that there is no vehicle by which he time travels. In the other episode that he was in, execution, he created the time machine. Like, yeah, he was like a scientist that created the machine or whatever to go back in time. Well, let me. Uh, this is just—he's just transported, you know, back in time without any help. 
at all. Right. Let me go ahead and read this little excerpt from my trusty companion, the Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zickry. I think every Twilight Zone fan should have this book. Uh, it's got it broken down by episode and little information there. So, um, in execution, Russell Johnson played a man who invented a time machine but did not himself travel through time. As Serling's back there, the 11th episode produced this season, he got the chance, though here the agent that propels our Mr. Corgan through time is not a machine, but rather a highly theoretical discussion. For all the intellectual fascination of its premise, however, back there is a dramatic failure. The reason is obvious. From the outset, the conclusion is known. Lincoln was assassinated. Therefore, Corgan won't be able to intercede. Says Buck Houghton, I think when you play Ducks and Drakes with the shooting of Lincoln... Your suspension of disbelief goes to uh, blank in a bucket. Uh, one and only one aspect of Back There deserved better than it got, and that was Jerry Goldsmith's original and haunting score. Fortunately, pieces of it were used to great effects in later episodes, notably Death Ship and Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. I would definitely agree with that. The score was, yeah, it was pretty ominous. I liked it. Um, one thing that I forgot to mention in the beginning... Uh, sorry, I was a little shaken off the rust here with this episode because <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, I thought Rod's opening monologue, how they panned to the chair, I thought that was really cool. Probably one of the coolest ones in in season two where they're in the Potomac Club or whatever and how they he's got that cool watch on again and he's sitting in that leather back chair. But one note that's interesting, I know I'm probably beating a dead horse, but going back to the time travel vehicle, apparently in the short story version... The Potomac Club itself has some sort of mysterious, mysterious, magical type powers. I don't know if it's, I don't know if you want to call it like haunted or what, I don't know. It has, that's what I had read that it had, that, that, that connection would make more sense if you knew the short story in its totality. Like it had some kind of mystical powers so that, you know, you could potentially be transported back in time because of the actual building itself had. I don't know. So they kind of left that out again. It's it was supposed to be an hour long, and it got cut to twenty three minutes. So that makes sense that why that connection wasn't necessarily made for the viewers as far as a time travel vehicle. Um, let me read one other. I'll go ahead and go down my list of questions and observations. Jimbo, you already asked a, uh, a question, uh, but I read this and I had just some discrepancy in reports but the decision to go to ford's theater was something last uh, a last minute thing that's what someone wrote there was very little chance that a woman uh running the boarding house would have known anything about it and i have read this is me personally i've read conflicting accounts that it was very much planned and in fact that ulysses s grant was to be in attendance that night at ford's theater but declined the invitation at the last minute on the insistence of his wife so apparently what I read, and this is Wikipedia, or I read in some other account, that Ulysses S. Grant was supposed to go to the, the theater that night with Lincoln, but um, that Ulysses S. Grant, his wife, uh, insisted that they travel to Virginia to, to get with a, I don't know, they had a sick family member or something. So at the last minute, he had to cancel. So Lincoln was you know there with Mary Todd Lincoln by themselves. So I don't know if it was planned or not planned. But if you if you watch any documentaries, I mean, I think it was planned to somewhat degree because John Wilkes Booth had like hired two other people to help him. They were supposed to kill uh, Sewer, who was the Secretary of State, right? I think his last name was Sewer, and, but he was in a carriage accident, 
and he actually, I think, was attacked like in his hotel room at the same time and was able to fight off the attacker. I can't remember the other two people who he recruited to kind of go along with the assassination. But Sewer, that, that was foiled, that attack. And then the third person, they just punked out altogether. Like, they got scared and disappeared. So it ended up just being John Wilkes Booth all by himself. So I don't know how... I mean, it seemed like it was planned somewhat because Bill Wilkes Booth knew where Lincoln was going to be that night. But I thought that was interesting about Grant and the fact that he was supposed to be there that night. And, man, how much worse it could have been if he ended up going and both of them were killed uh, at the same time. That would have been a huge... And, you know, Secretary of State Sewer, if he was killed at the same time, I mean, that would have been a devastating blow, which was the whole point behind the assassination attempt because he wanted to throw, you know, he wanted to throw the United States into confusion and upheaval and, and you know, which would have allowed the South to rise again, if you will, and then they there might have been an overtake of the government or something, you know, in that time of confusion. But anyway, Jimbo, do you have other questions or observations? Uh, not really. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give you my spill of this episode, my, my thoughts. Sure. Um, like I said at the beginning of this episode, I love history. Um, there is a television show. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's called Timeless. And um, I think it only lasted one season, maybe two. But I think I got it on my Voodoo account. But it was basically about this lady who would go and time travel to stop this guy that was time traveling, jumping around, trying to change the events of history. I think the first episode was about the uh, the Hindenburg explosion, the the uh, mm-hmm. the blimp. Um, so, but it got canceled. But I, I mean, I, I thought the premise was really good. But it also takes me to the movie uh, Somewhere in Time. Um, if you've ever seen the Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour movie Somewhere in Time. Um, it's very interesting because he he sits there on that thing and he's he just thinks and he time travels by thinking if you remember so that kind of threw me into the thought process of this episode just by them arguing mm-hmm. thinking about uh, time travel. I think Russell Johnson, even though his acting is over the top a bit uh, uh, when he's on the floor, especially I don't know why he was crawling to the fireplace, maybe to try to climb, uh, climb up. Um, but I think mm-hmm. uh, I think this episode stands head and shoulders above. Uh, pretty much everything we've seen this season, except uh, with the exception of Eye of the Beholder. Um, Howling Man might be right under there, too. But when you take history and you take um, the Twilight Zone and you intertwine them and then you throw in a little bit of sprinkle, a little bit of time travel in there, um, you got me. Uh, that's 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 a recipe for uh, uh, not disaster, but a recipe for greatness. And if I had to rank this on a scale of one to ten, I'm giving this a, probably a nine five. I, I just think it's that well done. I like the, the, the acting. I like the dialogue. And I like the time setting. I like the the the, uh, the decor of the set. I think they really did uh, a justice by showing the differentiation between the time that it was in 1961 that this was done and 1865 or whatever. I think it was very well done. And that's why this gets a Jimbo two thumbs up. Eric, what did you think about this episode? Okay. Um... I thought it was good. I love time travel episodes, but this one in particular seemed a little clunky, especially, I guess, in the dialogue department. The John Wilkes Booth twist is, you know, it's pretty discernible early in the episode. Um, But all in all, you know, I I wouldn't give it a 9.5. I'd probably give it a strong 7.5. I thought it it was pretty good. Uh, These 
types of episodes, like all Sterling episodes do, they cause you to ponder and they make you think about things. Like if you, could, like I mentioned before, if you could change a major event in someone's life or your own life, would you do it? Would you take the risk of altering the quote unquote time space continuum if you could, if you could change a major event? Um, so yeah, I would echo a lot of the sentiments that when you put real historical and we could dig for hours on the real historical accounts on, on JFK and the Lincoln assassination. And that could be a podcast all into itself. Um, so, but when you marry those two things together and the twilight zone, I think they're a perfect match. Um, you know, they're hand in glove. They always seem to produce for me good episodes. So I wouldn't put it, I don't think it's better than I, the beholder if we're listing and rating, but it, it definitely is a strong 7.5 for me. And I'll always love the time travel ones, no matter how bad they are. I just, I just like the whole concept, you know, and then I was taken back. You know what I would have liked to seen? We talked about it in our most unusual camera episode. If, if, yeah. if they would have been at that club and you would have seen like the camera sitting on a table or on the mantle somewhere, maybe had the, uh, the the uh, what was this? Uh, maybe have somebody with the camera there. You know what I mean? That he got rich and now he's in this big club now and had the camera there. I just think that would have been a pretty cool little throwback. But yeah, uh, that would be that, that's a good concept. Yeah, what a what a really good episode. I mean, uh, unfortunately for the next episode, I can't say the same. It might as far as good as this one, no. one is. The one after this is probably one of the worst in Twilight Zone histories, and I understand what they tried to do, but it's just uh, a mess. So if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, join us on the Tragedy of Cinema podcast Facebook page. Um, just answer the questions. It's Jimbo and Kyle, or you can even add Jimbo and Eric, or Eric and Kyle, whatever you want to put, or even Art Toast. Um, if you want to uh, send us an email at thetragedyofcinema at gmail.com, uh, you can. Um, if you want to leave us a rating on Apple iTunes or Google Podcasts, whatever, uh, we will read those on the air. But thanks again for coming alongside us, uh, walking down the fifth dimension of one of the greatest television shows of all time. So, Eric, you got anything else? Nope. I think that'll do it. All right. I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Mr. Peter Corrigan, lately returned from a place back there. A journey into time with highly questionable results. Proving on one hand that the threads of history are woven tightly and the skein of events cannot be undone. But on the other hand, there are small fragments of tapestry that can be altered. Tonight's thesis, to be taken as you will, in the Twilight Zone.